0: You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world, with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show,
1: ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be an special episode regarding some an outstanding black physician in our community. And the reason why we're bringing Doctor Terrence Julian is because he's a impressive neurosurgeon that has accomplished so much in his personal life and his professional career. And he becomes a, such a motivational speaker. And I almost shed tears while listening to his stories and the painful process and the difficult process that he had to deal with over the last 20 years of professional training and personal growth. So segregation in America is palpable. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not a situation that could be ignored, but it has historical roots. And as I'm going to probably bring it up later on the episode. As an immigrant, I wanted to educate myself on this topic. And I read this book called The Color of Law. I found it rather enlightening to understand the perspective of how the political and government organizations led to segregation of uh, black people and minorities in this country. The Color of Law is written by Richard Rumpstein, and it talks about a forgotten history of how our government in the U.S. segregated America by itself. And I highly recommend that it's about nine hours and a half of hardcore content that really enlightens those people that have never really got the facts on this. Obviously, the factors of racism may vary from country to country due to many historic, cultural, religious, economic, or demographic reasons, but several people assert that racism and ethnic discrimination in the United States is remarkably deep and is inherent and to certain fundamental aspects of the North American society. Historically, racism constitutes to be reflected in the socioeconomic inequality. Racial est- stratification still continues to this day to occur in employment, housing, education, lending, and government. Racism, specifically in the United States, has been a major issue ever since the era of colonialism and slavery. Legally sanctioned racism imposes a heavy burden on Native Americans, African Americans, Latino Americans like me, Americans from lesser developed parts of Europe, and Asian Americans. The Europeans Americans were remarkably privileged by the law in matters of literacy, immigration, voting rights, citizenship, land acquisition, and criminal proceedings over the time that extended all the way back to the 17th century to the 1960s. However, numerous European ethnic groups, including the Jews, Irish, Southern European, and Eastern European Americans, as well as immigrants from elsewhere, have suffered xenophobic exclusion and other forms of racism in the American society. And the reason why I say this is because this is not only happening to black Americans. And as in most countries, many people in the U.S. continue to have some prejudice against other races. We're not saying only black. Asian Americans, Latino Americans, American Indians, etc. So we need to continue to really pay attention to the current situation on that. And my message is a message of love. I don't want to create any hard feelings on any of you. Obviously, there is going to be people making a lot of statements regarding this. But the purpose of this podcast is not only uh, motivational, but educational and could be somehow controversial. But... We're gonna use Dr. Julian's as a significant example of accomplishment and success in the US. So please listen carefully, and I hope you enjoyed the show that Dr. Julian and I have put with a lot of effort and love for you guys. Thanks. Hi guys, and welcome to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. And today we're having Dr. Terence Julian, is a neurosurgeon for those that are non-medical that means a brain surgeon he currently practices in the institution that i do belong in, and we actually got connected to there and dr julian despite that he's not a foreign or an international medical graduate we try to stay current with the current political and economical situation also that is happening in the world and in the united states and you know we have been speaking about the pandemic and we brought some guests to speak about COVID 19 in the past you know dr aneha Give us some good information and she'll be coming onto the show in the near future to see what's the progress that we're doing with disease process. And Dr. Julian, like me, a minority uh, and a successful physician in the United States. And with the significant controversy. In the news that you guys are seeing about the Black Lives Matters movements, BLM movement, I thought that Dr. Julian was going to be a phenomenal character to bring in, not only for his huge personal professional accomplishments, but when I say he's a minority, he is, you know, a person of color like me, but he's American Black and. He has done so much for himself, and I was going over his resume, and I was remarkably impressed. We're going over about 12 to 15 pages of some really phenomenal accomplishments that he has had throughout his career. Dr. Julian is a medical doctor, an MD, that is originally from Delaware, and he's undergrad at University of Delaware, uh, graduating with a major in biology and pre-medicine and a minor in psychology in 1998. And then he was immediately eager to pursue, to attend medical school. And he went into Howard University, where he graduated in 1993. Dr. Julian, first of all, before I continue introducing you and and you to tell us about yourself, thank you for being here. And thank you for being part of the Foreign International Medical Graduate Podcast.
2: Sure. I am a uh, first generation born in the U.S., but... My parents immigrated from from Trinidad and Tobago, so most of my family is from Caribbean descent. And so I I incorporate a lot of that into my daily life. My father was very particular about education, which most of uh, the Caribbeans that that come to the U.S. back in in that time, back in the 60s, they were one of the first few that that immigrated into uh, the United States. Obviously, uh, it was a very difficult time, not only socioeconomically, unrest of the 60s. You know, my parents always told me stories about that growing up. And it was very difficult for them because not only were they minorities, but they were minorities among the minorities being of Caribbean descent. And so um, back in the the 60s, uh, American black minorities really didn't partake among the Caribbeans that came to the U.S. because the first few that came to the U.S. had very high drive and, and distinction academically. I mean, that, that was the only way you can get to the U.S. You had to be, you know, top 1% within your class in order for the government, you know, sometimes, you know, the government would sponsor a lot of people to come to, to the U.S. And so obviously it was very competitive and, and you had to be, you know, the best of the best and so um my father and a lot of his friends immigrated to canada and in the u.s i actually was a, almost a canadian citizen because my parents went to canada first along with a lot of his friends in winnipeg there's a strong contingent of, uh, of caribbeans in winnipeg canada because they can't get into the u.s initially they go to canada because it's a lot, obviously it's a lot easier to, to get into canada and so um a lot of his friends either went into uh, engineering or, or, or medicine and that was the, what most of of his friends went into my my father was an engineer was a mechanical engineer so that was the background of uh, myself, my brother you know we education was was very pertinent and very stringently kind of expressed in our family and my father always strove to make sure that you know we put education first. It let us obviously play our sports and that sort of thing, but as long as it didn't interfere with our, our education. And so I always wanted to be a physician. My mom told me from age five, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And so that was my, you know, my pursuing goal. That was always, you know, my goal. Was no matter what I did, I always knew that, you know, it it had to have some, some respect or some... Some way to make uh, to make sure that I was you know, going to be able to attain my goal, and you know, that was to be a doctor. And so, go ahead, you're going to ask me something.
1: So, first of all, let me trace back. Your parents immigrated from Trinidad and Tobago. You're obviously a minority like me. You're from the Caribbean, and one of the important things that your father always reminded you of is that education was the only way to succeed in life. And you started being successful since very early on. You and I, in our preliminary conversation, you have said that you became nominated to the Who is Who in America very early on since high school due to your personal achievements. And I see that you kept getting nominated through the years until recently, back to year after year on that.
2: Yeah, so my first Who's Who accomplishment was was in high school. I believe it was my junior year in high school. And Who's Who is the kind of recognition where they, and once you get awarded, they kind of follow you, particularly at that age, they follow your career. And then I, you know, through college and med school, I got nominated and recognized a couple times through that process. And then obviously, once I was... Finished my uh, education, uh, got recognized more and more because obviously um, you know you're doing more accomplishments, more outside awards and that sort of thing. And, and like I said, they really follow you once you get nominated and recognized at an early age. They they kind of follow your career. That's why if you look at my CV, I mean there's a lot of who's who recognitions in Husu who in America, Husu who in the world, Husu who in healthcare because that's obviously you know that's was the the industry that I ended up in, and and so. And that is one of the things that you know I'm very proud of. It's it's kind of helped me because that that gives me um, something that you know to, that I get recognized for, particularly in medicine. You know, as you know, it's very competitive. So and um, obviously
1: to make it into medical school as a minority is also a rarity, Uh, specifically the what would you say that is the percentage of American black or blacks in certain medical school? I know that you specifically attended Howard University where there is a larger percentage of blacks, but, you know, they're also friendly to other minorities and people alike.
2: It's interesting. The black minorities make up about two to three percent of all the physicians in the U.S., and actually, I think as of last year, black females outnumbered black males for the first time. So that shows you kind of what's going on in our country. The only ethnicity where that is, has ever happened. That's, you know, it's, it's good in one respect, but it's also, you know, disparaging in, in others because it shows that the plight of, of the black male in, in this country.
1: Yes, that's a very hot topic also to discuss. And please understand the listeners that I grew up in Colombia and uh, for me coming to this country and going through the culturization process, I personally in my country, I never experienced this sort of racial phenomenon that uh, I have to deal here on regular basis in America. And I'm always learning and I know that we need to be quote unquote politically correct and be extremely careful how we manage this critical topic. And right now seems to be the hot button that cannot be pushed because you can get in real trouble really easy. But in my personal case, you know, I I never had an issue like this. And, And through the 20 years that I've been in America, I learned more and more and more and more. And what I have done for the last few weeks is actually picked up a book called The Color of Law. Uh, to try to really understand the phenomenon of de jure and de facto segregation, uh, to get myself exposed to to the history. And, And what is interesting about this book is how the government somehow through history has purposely segregated minorities and blacks in America to have purposely access to less education or less quality education, to lock them up into certain areas of neighborhoods and not let them break the cycle. And obviously, you came from a very highly educated family. You're the son of a mechanical engineer, which is not specifically the circumstances of many a Black American. You know, the culture unfortunately has an absence of of fathers that have been caught sometimes in crime and violence. And but I think the circumstances in this country has led the culture to be that way. But I think we can probably be an example and a motivation in how we can make things better.
2: I I completely agree.
1: To say at least, I mean, to make it into medicine, first of all, you have to have a huge resume and you have it. And then not only to be a doctor in America with a medical degree behind your name, you also pursue neurosurgeon tell us how this passion from for brain surgery and and how in the world you make it in the most regarded specialty yeah. i would say in the world because the united states is then the mecca of medicine of the 20th and 21st century you know the top of the top of the top i mean and being a minority that's yeah. huge.
2: it's very huge and it and it wasn't easy
1: go on do you mind expanding <laughs> on on the feelings <laughs> on, what was the path
2: sure you know got good grades in high school college med school i always wanted to do uh, and deal with uh, brain i was initially taught that i was going to go into neurology and uh, that's what i was working towards i was that's why you see my cv i have a psychology minor because of all of the courses that i took had getting a minor in psychology i, I could have stayed like an, another semester, taking two other courses and, and double majored if I wanted to. But I was always interested in, uh, in neuroscience, the brain, in particular, brain tumors, and that's why, if you look at my CV, I did some fellowships, and did a research fellowship at, at Sloan Memorial, and then a clinical fellowship down here in Tampa at Moffat Cancer Center. So I always was intrigued about the brain, neuroscience, and and in particular the interaction of oncology. And so during my undergrad years, I specifically I geared myself towards molecular biology because that was one of the the new sort of basic sciences that was coming up in, in the 80s, uh microbiology and how it related to neuroscience. So cuz that was what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a neurologist and and kind of work in the basic science aspects of that as well. When I got to med school first day, We meet all the chiefs of all the services. And each chief kind of asks you, you know, what you're doing, what what got you interested in medicine. So I met Dr. Gary Dennis. He was told him that, you know, I have interest in, in neuroscience, brain tumors, you know, I was thinking of being a neurologist and um he kind of looked at me kind of quizzically and he was was like no you don't he said you want to be? you need to come spend some time with me (laughs) so i my first year my second week you know my basic science courses i met with him he was like yeah come spend some time with me so as a couple of uh, on my off time i would go to the or and then it was i was really intrigued by it and my second year i did a uh scientific project with him it was um looking at gunshot wounds we remember this was the 80s and so dc was very prevalent you know among violence in in the 80s and so they dealt with a lot of gunshot wounds at, at howard university hospital and, and and dc general howard covered dc general back then it's no longer around now but between dc general and, and huh a lot of gunshot wounds, gun, you know, knife and gun club, big, you know, for sure. And um, and so he had me kind of look at um, uh, retrospectively some of the the GSWs to the head, doing it, see how the, the outcomes were. Looking at their CAT scan data, and then we put a paper together, and and we actually got it published. And so um, with that kind of work, I was like, you know what, I think I can. Uh, this is the field for me. And so I, um, at Howard, they have a uh, fellowship. It's called the Mitchell Foundation Fellowship. Two people each year are, get to apply and, and uh, get recognized. And so that ended up being the work that um, I did with him. I was one of the uh, Mitchell Foundation Fellows. Got a little stipend associated with it. You know, we had to produce the work and and, uh, and get The basic thing is that um, had to get the uh, manuscript published, and so um, that was the manuscript that and the work that I did with him, and that really got me interested in in neurosurgery.
1: So not only you attend a school that is mostly prevalently black, but you become the best of the best within the minority, and you excel to become one of the two holders of an academic. uh, Scholarship to Pursue a Fellowship in Research in Neurotrauma. Yes, yeah,
2: it was surgery and surgical subspecialties was a fellowship. Because okay. Dr. Mitchell, he was, uh, I believe he was, he was either a colorectal surgeon or a transplant surgeon, and he established that fellowship. So any surgery or surgical subspecialty medical student in their second year, that was like prepare them in order to, to get before they went into the third year
1: awesome so you did this fellowship but i guess that was the little uh, seeds that you planted to move on into the next step yeah exactly and this is when the going gets tough because you're applying to brain surgery, neurosurgery in America, guys. I rotated to a neurosurgeon as an emergency physician on my first year one month, on my second year one month, and my third year a couple months. And it's the most brutal rotation i ever done <laughs> in my life. I did like four months within a 36-month period. Dr. Julian did this for the seven years of um residency training in in neurosurgery plus all the fellowships that you have accomplished. Oh my God. Uh, They're huge. Neurology, oncology. What else?
2: Well, I will say, I don't want to forget the people that helped me. So at Howard at that time, Dr. Barber was still on staff and he was the third black person to get trained in neurosurgery ever. Ever. The
1: third neurosur- black neurosurgeon in America. Guys, and why we're talking about this is because, guys, I'm just going to be blunt. Neurosurgery is a white person, especially...
2: I always say... No women. ...is the last vestige of white medicine in America.
1: Yes, sir. You have said yeah. it better than I, I could have.
2: And it's, it's been the case. I mean, you know, kind of going through it all and everything telling you, it is, I grew up in the suburbs in white America. That's why, you know, I, everyone always jokes with me and saying, why you talked the way I, because I grew up, you know, in, in the suburbs. And so, you know, I've always been around, you know, white people. I mean, that's what my father wanted. He wanted to make sure that we were around people who are highly motivated, highly educated. So that would be one less thing because being a Caribbean like, like you, I mean, you know, probably more so than, than I do. Having um, an accent and that sort of thing, it it makes you stick out in in the crowd when you're around, you know, areas of, of educated people in, in in America. I mean, it's just it is what it is. I mean, that's my father talked to me about it all the time. I mean, that's why he's like I you know, my parents both have very thick, you know, obviously Trinidadian accents. And um, my dad talked about it all the time, how he said if there's one thing that he wish he didn't have is it it that accent. Because that accent is hard enough being black, but being black with a, a Caribbean accent, it would made it particularly hard for him to get ahead in America.
1: And this is a question that probably I have never asked before, but I always ask myself. And as I said, without trying to make an offense to anyone, what were the teachings or the heads up or the educations or the pointers that your father told you about this racism that is so prevalent in America? What was his uh, few things that yeah. he told you to carry yourself or to act or to do? Or what were the, the things? I mean, part of it
2: was, was carrying yourself, you know, you had to, carry yourself the way they do. You have to be, obviously, I mean, it's a cliche, but you hear from every black person that that has gotten ahead. You have to be the the best white person, you know, that you're competing with. You have to be better than them because, you know, you're at a disadvantage automatically. You walk in the room, you are automatically at a disadvantage. They see you, you see you're black and you can, they, on paper, you're like, oh yeah, this is a very, you know, well-rounded, educated, you know, person. But as soon as you walk in the room, they see that you're black. That puts, you know, one check, you know, against you. No matter what you say, no matter, you know, who you're competing against. There's always that that little check mark against you, you know, being a, a black American. And so my father always said, you know, you have to walk the walk, talk the talk. But then when you're competing against other people, you had to be better than them. And you said, it's not fair, it's not right, but this is how it is in, in America.
1: Wow, that's beautiful teachings. And, um, you know, um, as a Latino, you know, I would say immigrant Hispanics were also one of the groups that is uh, after American natives, one of the top segregated groups in the United States. And as you said, my accent has gotten me in trouble sometimes. Things get twisted or misinterpreted or... Just, um, yeah,
2: he said that there's one thing that, that he wishes he could change about himself, it, it's his accent. And I'm, I'm like, looking at him, I'm like, why? I, was, I, was like, I love your accent. I said, I wish I had your accent. <laughs> and he was like, no, you don't. He's like, where we are and how you are is for a particular reason. Yes, and it's because of all the misgivings and hardships that me and mom had to go through, you know, being in America all these years.
1: Well, you were referencing one of the top first three neurosurgeons one of your attendings that you are extremely thankful for let's go back to that and retake from that part of the story that it seems to be extremely moving to you
2: yeah dr barber was uh as i said he was the third trained neurosurgeon in in the country black trained when i got there he had just i think stepped down the year before or two years ago as uh the chairman and so dr gary dennis was the chairman at the time he's from uh, louisiana he was the first black neurosurgeon trained at Baylor University, wow. so you can see it's a lot of a lot of heritage, you know. in In the eighties, you know, at that time, and then uh, Dr. Lafall. I don't know if you know who Dr. Lafall is. He he just passed away last year. He was a preeminent cancer surgeon, and uh, to the point where he was president of the American Cancer Association. The only black, you know surgeon that's ever been uh, president of American Cancer Associated. He was amazing. I mean, not only Dr. Dennis, but when I started doing my my third-year rotations and we would do a general surgery, I was able to scrub cases with him. He was an amazing, amazing man. I mean, we always used to hear the stories about how he never had to study during med school. He had a 100% total recall so he would just listen during the, the, to the lectures. And then, you know, we always used to hear because a lot of his colleagues were in med school with him. And uh, one of them, Dr. Colander, who was a transplant surgeon always used to tell his story about how he and, and LaFall, he'd be studying, you know, for, you know, exams. And Dr. LaFall would walk in and say, Hey, how you doing? And he's like, to, and he used to ask him, won't you study him for, for a test tomorrow? I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good. And then, <laughs> and then he would go in and get 100. And, and he would ace you know, huh? It's like he had that kind of, of a recall, that kind of memory. And then so he was a, an amazing person. And then on top of that, he was he was a brilliant surgeon. Sometimes we often see that in surgical specialties, that people who are really, really good, smart, they're not good hands-wise. But he was very good. Uh, chairman of the department of surgery and like I said he was president of the ACA which is not a small accomplishment.
1: For the non-medical listeners we are touching right now something that he just said when you become a brain surgeon you have to have a huge dexterity with your hands which you need to be good with your hands to move along to deal with little microscopes operating on tiny little brain aneurysms or blood vessels and very particular areas that if you don't touch properly or manipulate the proper way or use a cautery on the wrong region, you can affect the patient permanently. permanently. You not only have to be smart, but you also have to be good with your hands. So you were obviously uh, proven that you are good with... uh, fine motor skills Yeah, that's,
2: that's one thing that i i found during school is that yeah i i had a good knack for surgery and, and i liked it
1: dr julian for our listeners that do not know anything about how the process of training in neurosurgery in america can you briefly summarize it so they get a grip on what you went through the pain
2: sure so back when i trained we had to do one year of general surgery which was uh, the transitional year where we kind of rotated through all the surgical subspecialties. And then um, I, at that time, it was um, one in six, so one year of general surgery and, then, and six years of neurosurgery. I spent two years on the uh, neurosurgery service. And, um, and then from there, I was able to get an advanced spot um, at State University of New York Upstate Medical Center. And so um, I had to repeat my third year. So I did eight years of neurosurgery. Followed by how many? Followed by, so one in seven. So one year of general surgery, seven years of neurosurgery. And then I did two fellowships. I did research at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I did a clinical fellowship at at Moffitt Cancer Center. So I did 10 years of training.
1: After four years of medical school.
2: And four years. And four
1: years of college. So after 18 years, you have finally gotten here.
2: 20 plus years education if you had all the high school and everything.
1: You and I, during a launch two weeks ago, um, had a discussion that, you know, after so many years of training, after having accomplished so much financially, because neurosurgeons don't make like $5 a year. And we're talking about that. <laughs> they work hard, but they are highly compensated. So there is a lot of personal investment and time. I mean, 20 years in the making to be financially stable. And he deserves it because he's dealing with complex things that uh, in the 21st century, we don't really get to understand it very well. Yeah. He also dedicates himself to the most complex cases like uh, glioblastoma multiforme, which is a horrible malignant brain tumor. And he specializes in working on that and and anything brain related to tumors. And so... Everything that he has done has been so, so good academically, professionally. But during the discussion that we had is that I think he has gotten to the point in his life that is the time to give back. And he was very passionate about the fact that he felt that everything has been done from his end point for himself. Now it's time to give back. Tell us about how you feel about this accomplishment in your life and what's the next step. I mean, the um, reflective part.
2: Sure. I've been in academics, you know my whole career up to this point. And so, you know, I spent, you know, 12 years in, in academics. You know, when I last left, I was associate professor in the returgery. And so, uh, you know, had all kind of directorships and everything and, and training. And I would say that, you know, the one thing that I liked most about, you know, academics is, is training residents. That's the one thing I really liked the impartation of uh, the knowledge, you know, that that we have, each surgeon that we have, because we all have different kind of educations and different experiences. And so, you know, at at some point, um, you know, but it does wear on you because, um, like we were talking about, you know, aside from just all the clinical sort of responsibilities, then you have academic responsibilities as well. So you have to publish... Teaching was never a problem, so i, mean, I didn 't mind doing that, but then I had other sort of interests as well i mean I, I like product development and that sort of thing, and so i was I was doing that as well and and so I was really you know doing a lot and so you know I got to the point where yeah, I wanted to you know kind of do my clinical work and then do my Kind of product development, sort of interest as well, and 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 not have you know other sort of you know requirements that that um, you know I was kind of not paying attention to, and so um, because they're always there, particularly in academics, there's always you know something that kind of your time is is attributed to, and so um, you know my uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago. And I I wanted to move down, be closer to my mother. And so, you know, the position here, they had had still not filled. And I did a fellowship in Tampa. So I'm very familiar with Tampa. You know, I like Tamra and, you know, said to myself at some point, you know, I I would want to come back to Tampa, you know, if not to practice, you know, maybe to retire or something like that. And so, you know, the, the opportunity opened up. And so I, you know, came here back to Tampa, which allowed me to kind of still practice in the area and able to do some of the things that, that, that I want, you know, kind of interested in still doing.
1: So Dr. Julian is an imposing tall 6'5", no. muscular <laughs> man.
2: One. I'm six. One. Six. One that
1: drives a phenomenal gray Maserati, <laughs> yeah, and he's now here with us in Tampa. And uh, I had the privilege to give him the orientation at my hospital when he initially That's joined true. us. And I'm really thankful for you being here because it's so hard to get an hour of a brain surgeon to just talk to to someone in general about life. But Dr. Julian, let me go back a little bit. I know that you broke the cycle of segregation and the competitiveness of getting into such a niche of white people. What barriers you had to go through that were not really obvious they were like de facto like hidden yeah but that yeah. it was happening what was it like give a us some examples live a without lot. bringing names or, or people but you no. know
2: you know back in the 80s you know medicine was very resistant to still you know letting minorities particularly black minorities in their ranks and so you know first applied to medical school I uh, I didn't get in initially, and so I had to. Uh, I did spend a year doing research, and then that kind of allowed me to enhance you know my resume to the point where I was able to get in. I got in uh, at Howard and Thomas Jefferson. I uh, initially waitlisted at, at Jeff, and 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 I'd already moved down to DC. And then by the time I uh, they told me that I got in, I. Uh, it was like the first week of med school and, you know, at Howard. And so I was already there. I was like, you know what? Plus my father went to Howard for, for undergrad. And, uh, you know, he got his engineering degree at at Howard. So I was like, let me, um, let me just stay here. I mean, I was, I was already there. And, and, you know, I think that was one of the, you know, the best decisions uh, that I made because it, it gave me a, a very different sense culturally of being black in America. Because like I said, I, you know, up until that point, I was always, you know, in the suburbs around, around white people, and even University of Delaware was, was I hate saying this, but there were about 15,000 students in University of Delaware when I was there. There were less than 500 black people, minority, oh. not just, just black, not minorities, but less than 500. What do they think about that? Of a school of 15,000
1: what was like or what it's like to be black in America?
2: It's very difficult. You know, growing up, I grew up in the 70s and 70s and 80s. It was a rough time in, in America. The N-word was flung around. I jokingly tell people, you know, uh, growing up in the 70s, I heard the N-word so many times, you know, I even think it was my middle name. So, you know, it's really rough growing up in America and, and hearing you kind of say that, you know, you would never experience that. I mean, I, you know, it's, it does lend to the fact that I was like, man, I wonder how I would be different, you know, if I didn't have to experience that, you know, growing up. Did Um, it make you tougher?
1: Did it make you Oh, it definitely did.
2: You know, it it hardens you and and it, it makes you persistent, makes you very persistent because getting in, um, you know, to medical school, AI you know, was a chore, but getting into neurosurgery was was almost almost impossible, uh, being black in this country. When I when I was at NYU doing my fellowship, surprisingly, there were two other black residents there with me. They were both in the years ahead of me. And so um the three of us uh you know we used to always hang out, always go to Conferences and everything together. And back then, it was, remember, it's the 80s, early 90s, middle of the, uh, of the AIDS epidemic in New York City. So I was there from 94 to 96, which was right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic in, in New York. And so, you know, back then, the imaging wasn't as good, MRIs weren't as good as they are now. So in order to diagnose someone that had toxo, the brain or anything like that, we had to do brain biopsies. And, um, and my chairman, since he was a uh, brain specialist, because consulted to do these and, and he hated to do them because, you know, patients were HIV positive and, you know, most of them were, you know, minorities and, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, he was Irish and, uh, and, you know, he had his own set of, of attitudes that, you know, would make one think about if he really was someone who was, you know, distasteful of, of minorities. You know, there were a couple times where, you know, we would go over conference, you know, pre-op conference, and, um, yeah, we used to see a lot of age patients, like I said. And, um, you know, several comments were made by, of course, all the professors were white. So several comments were made about the patients, whether it being black, whether it being on crack, you know, whatever, you know, saying, you know, this this is a waste of time. You know, why am I, why do we have to biopsy on you know, this, this crack, you know, this crack, whatever. And so, and knowing that they had, you know, they had three minority residents, you know that were in, in the auditorium listening to what they're saying. Didn't care one bit. Wow.
1: Well, that's shocking, guys. And uh, I think that you were also lucky enough that during your training, you found a very progressive uh, program director that was all-inclusive. And you said that yeah. your training program looked like the United Nations. They had a yeah. white a woman, a well, Latino, black.
2: That's correct. So from there, uh, from NYU, went on to uh, SUNY Upstate and – um. My chairman there, um same was Dr. Hodge, Charles Hodge. And all of my friends say that we, we owe our professional lives to him. I mean, he was very progressive. And like I was telling you, we had in my, grad, in my class, there was me and one other um, black minority. We had an Asian. We had two women. It was even more of a rarity back then in the 90s and then being black and black male. So yeah, I mean, there was a time where um, all the senior residents were white and then all the residents behind them, including myself, were minorities. So at one point in the residency, minorities outnumbered the white people, which was the only program in America that was like that.
1: It is amazing. And what do you think it would be the way to start changing our culture? I know that this movement has created a lot of criticism. And how do we do it from within ourselves individually? Um,
2: People like my chairman. Because all the people in power are white. But it's going to take, you know, obviously white people who are in places of power that aren't going to be afraid to elevate them. Minorities, women. I mean, that's what's only, that's until that happens, nothing really is going to change in this country. And you look at our president now, and you know, it feels like we're back in the 50s and 60s, to be perfectly honest. Yes,
1: it is extremely sad. And I try to abstain away from making political comments because I know people are going to be posting, (laughs) doing a lot of hate (laughs) and stuff like that. But you know, it is hard to uncover the truth. It is hard. So I'm going to ask you this you and I have met. We're in, in, in a cocktail party, and it's not about being a doctor, and I'm a normal person. I'm, I'm an, a banker, and you happen to be there, extremely well-dressed, and hello, uh, hi, and what's your name? I said, my name is Alonso, sorry, and your name, uh, I'm Dr. Terrence Julian. Oh, you're a doctor, so they're changed, they're, their eyes probably popped out, and then you tell them, oh, really, what kind of a doctor you are, and you tell them, I'm a brain surgeon, and they probably- Poop on their pants.
2: Let me tell you, because it's it's happened so many times that I don't tell people what I do unless they specifically ask. So they ask, you know, what do you do? You know, and you know, a lot of people will do that, and I will just say, oh, I'm I'm just a physician. And I, I don't say anything else. Sometimes people kind of pry. I let them get one question in, and I I will literally deflect it. And if they're persistent, then I say, all right, I, I'll them." to say I'm a neurosurgeon. Because once they find out you're a neurosurgeon, it's like the whole, everything changes. And I'm like, I don't want to be portrayed that way. You should be interested in who I am because of, you know, we're here talking and, and, and everything. But once they find out that you're a neurosurgeon, it's just like, yo, this guy has to be somebody. He's, he's not only a neurosurgeon, but he's black. Like, holy cow, how the hell did that happen? You know, so it's, it's like one of those things.
1: I wanted to ask that. So let's get motivational. Let's say that we have an auditorium full of black kids that are not privileged as you were growing up. Let's say that these are kids from Tampa that are obviously minorities and they have very poor access to education. They have single mothers with no parent images, with horrible exposure to domestic violence and street drugs, plenty of dropouts. And I bring you in, Dr. Julian, as the example for the community that Things can change. What would be the message that you will give a 15, 13-year-old kid that is really struggling to make it?
2: The the one thing that I would tell them is that, and it's, it's kind of multifactorial because, you know, you have to relate to them. And, I, you know, obviously I can relate to them being Black. You know, my upbringing is, is obviously different from theirs. And so, you know, I, I would relate to them that, you know, Even though I had a different upbringing, you know, I still went through the same, you know, sort of racism, roadblocks, you know, adversities that all of them would would go through. And so, you know, the biggest thing is, is you have to find a mentor. And that's, that's the one thing that I kind of strive to do. If anyone wants to, to, wants me to be their mentor, my way to help them, because it's, very very difficult to do to get ahead and not only get ahead but to to break out of that cycle alone i mean it, it's been done obviously it has been done but it's it's very difficult and it takes someone of a very unique character to, to kind of do that someone who uh, is able to kind of be, have blinders on, only looking at, you know, the main goal is, is to get out of, out of their situation. And even then, there's some very promising young people that, that still have issues and, and, and difficulties in doing that. So, um, you know, that would be one of the, the one things that I would tell them is, you know, find a mentor, work with someone to kind of help you to, and guide you. And I think that's the biggest thing is to, to guide you on a, the correct path. Because someone like me, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of adversity. So I know kind of some of the things that, that they need to look out for to kind of help them to get out of where they're at. Because not only will they have to, you know, kind of navigate through life, but, you know, they'll have to navigate through their current living situation as well. And, and, you know, none of us can really know what that's like. Only they can know what that's like. And so um, whoever and, and or whatever they can do to kind of help them to kind of navigate through uh, life experiences to kind of make things just a little bit easier. One, you know, one or two, maybe less roadblocks is, is sometimes for some people all it takes to, to help them to get out of where, where they're at and uh, to help them get on the, on the proper path.
1: And I'm married to an American white chick is what I call her. And uh, my kids, my daughter is like me, you know, dark skin color. And my son is a little white dude. And every day I remind them of the fact that I'm an immigrant to this country that came with one bag of luggage into an airport in Miami two yeah. years ago. With a lot of dreams and hopes and everything that they have standing over their heads, the roof, the things that they have, the toys, has not been given for free. That there is no. a lot of work that his father had to go through yeah. and segregation to go through. And to this day, I still am considered a little, quote, different because of the way I act and the way I express myself or the way I carry myself or how flashy I am with my clothes, my necklaces, my bracelet, or just my demeanor, but... You know, it's it's who I am and I'm not going to change. I'm extremely proud of my heritage. And I tell my kids, you must be proud and everybody has to be treated as an equal. And unless we start changing the mentality of the little children in this country, I don't think this generations are going to change. Despite the nasty politics that are happening right now for power, I think uh, this is the moment to kind of get together and realize that there is more to life than hate. And. I'm just uh, extremely moved by this episode, Dr. Julian, because it's been a lot of empowerment for minorities. So before I let you go, I want to direct a little bit of hope and specifically get some advice from you towards international medical graduates to young kid from India that wants or let's say China that wants to become into America has great USMLE scores and has great letters of recommendation wants to become a neurosurgeon what do they have to do and what are the uh, roadblocks they're going to be facing once in the United States
2: so the biggest roadblock is obviously they're going to be an FMG and so and their scores more often than not are gonna be better than than American students. And so what they have to realize is that it's not an equal sort of comparison. FMGs always are looked upon differently. The biggest thing is that not only being a foreign medical graduate, but um, depending on where they come from makes a big difference. Someone who, like you said, China, but maybe India, you know, Germany, Canada, or United Kingdom, they're going to be looked upon in a more favorable light than some of the other foreign medical graduates. And it's, it's all because of their similarity of their medical system to the U.S. system. And so that's, that's the one thing. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of, of high school students and the medical training is very different in other countries than it is in the U.S. Um, and I know that because, like I said, my parents are from, from Trinidad. We had, they grew up in a British system. And so in order, uh, you can go right to med school from, from high school. It's six years. And what it is, it's combined, it's combined education. It's, it's basically two years of, of undergrad, two to three years of undergrad, and, and you know, three years of, of medical training. And you get the uh, the equivalent to an m d and so um, that 's the one thing as far as if those roadblocks come up, my biggest suggestion is is to not give up. if your objective is to get in and practice into the United States. the next thing is to do research in the u s because that's that's going to be the biggest Thing that's going to distinguish you between some of the other, other kind of uh, applicants. And to do research in, uh, at an institution that is one of the, the better known in the field that you want to get into, that's, that's the other thing too. Because that way you can work with the people in, in that field, they, they know who you are, and letters of recommendation make a big difference in the U.S. system. So even though if you're a former medical graduate, if you have one or two letters from someone um, that's well-recognized in the field, and who knows, sometimes it's it's someone that, you know, we've trained with or trained us, you know? And so those make a very, very distinguishing mark compared to someone else that has similar, you know, kind of credentials. That can actually kind of put you over the top as someone if there's two people with similar credentials, they're going to take the person that has the letters from people that they know and and respect. And like I said, sometimes it's even people that they've trained or, or have trained them. And that is one of the biggest things that I, I can emphasize, is if your objective is to really get into the United States and you don't initially, you have to be persistent and you have to kind of do these fellowships, research, all these sort of things to get you around the people that can either give you the letters that you need or can actually bring you in. I mean, that's what happened to me initially. I mean, that's why I was able to get an advanced spot is because my second year at NYU got counted as a residency spot. And that was the first time that had ever been happened at NYU. A fellow who spent more than uh, one year there Actually got counted the one of the years counted towards um, the ABNS, and um, when I told Doctor Hodge that, he was like, "Come on, I don't believe that," because he thought I was going to have to start, you know, all the way from the beginning. And I was wow. like, "No," it was like my second year got counted as a PGY three, three, and so, um, well, I was a PGY two born in PGY three, so I'm, I was available for a PGY three spot, and that's what he had plan that's what he had available and so I was like I I'm eligible for that and so he did his research he called the board and he was like he was like I'll be damned he was like he was like and his friend at NYU and this is what I'm talking about friends so one of his biggest one of his very best friends at NYU was Dr. Cooper got to know Dr. Cooper very well and he was the one that actually did this for me he was like I'm gonna talk to Dr. Kelly who was the chairman and we're gonna keep you on for another year and I'm gonna work. He said, I can't make any promises, but I'm gonna talk to Dr. Kelly and have him work to get you the second year calendar. And I was like, are you serious? He was like, yes. He was like, you know, you're a really good fellow and I want you to be a resident somewhere. We'll get you a residency somewhere. And um, that's what I'm talking about as far as working with these people to uh in the field that you wanna that you want to you know prospectively get into. Because without Dr. Cooper's help, you know, I I might not have been able to get in. And I know I definitely wouldn't have gone in and I'd have to start all over again. So yeah.
1: I think all of us need an angel, and I have said this probably 10 times in the podcast. For me, it was Dr. Kelly O'Keefe to give me the opportunity to become a board-certified residency-trained emergency physician because that's what I wanted. So Dr. Cooper was your angel and the one that kind of gave you that opportunity. So we all need a chance, and we all have been given a chance looking yeah. back at some point in time of our lives.
2: And that's why I talk about mentors. I couldn't have gotten where I am without Dr. Cooper and Dr. Hodge, those two people uh, got me where I am today.
1: Wow, that's very sweet for you to say. So, last question before I let you go uh, What's the personality that a neurosurgical resident has to have? I know that you guys go through a grueling, painful, long hours, crankiness attending sometimes, and you make it through <laughs> 10, 12 years of brutal training. What's the personality yeah. that you, you have to have to tolerate the pain and you the abuse? Have to-
2: you have to be you have to have tough skin because and it's neurosurgery now is nowhere near how it was back in in the nineties. I mean I I call it a powder puff neurosurgery now because <laughs> back in, in the nineties I'm telling you, it was grueling. It was called every other night, every third night at most, every third night. Most of the time it was every other night. I tell people when I was at NYU, it was an unregulated and this was before the, the 80 hour. Hour. And so I spent three months covering the VA service by myself. Three months <laughs> on call every day. I mean, it was call from home, but it was, you're still on call. You're still getting calls every day for three months. It's brutal. Every weekend, I mean, I couldn't go anywhere. I was stuck in New York for every weekend for three months. And it, I'm telling you, neurosurgery back then, it was, it was very different, very different. And, yeah. you know, that's part of the reason why, you know, the 80-hour workweek came in. I never experienced 80-hour workweek. When the 80-hour workweek came in, I was a chief resident. And, of course, at that time, chief residents were, were exempt. Even now, chief residents are exempt on surgery. I don't know about any other subspecialty, but the chiefs on surgery are still exempt from the 80 hours because you can't, there's no way as a chief of any surgery subspecialty, you can spend 80 hours and, and expect to, to cover the cases that you need to cover. So That yeah, makes sense. Well, yeah.
1: you heard from the man. I'm going to call Dr. Terrence Julian the man because he broke through it. And I think the <laughs> last hour and 15 minutes have been phenomenal. I, I mean, no, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm surprised. And I'm going to tell you, I'm proud of you. I'm proud no. of you. Thank you for, for doing what you do. Thank you. F- and I hope I never go to see you for a brain tumor. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, never, ever. <laughs> um, thank you for fighting this horrible disease and this horrible condition. And from the bottom of my heart and my listeners, I hope that the... Message that they get to capture is one of motivation, is not one of criticism, is not one of judgment, is not a, 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 a statement of uh, us against white people. Uh, I, we're all in the same boat. We're one same race on this planet. Let's keep it together and let's be happy. There is no need to have hatred and let's try to make us the president says America great again.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Anytime. Hey, you want to do any more? Let me know.
1: Uh, You've been fantastic. A blessing. And uh, thank you so
2: much, Dr. Junior, for being on the show. Have a good day.